Well, I invite you, if you have a Bible with you this morning, to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, and we're in chapter 15 as we come to the end of it, end of chapter 15 today, on into chapter 16. There are certain figures in the Bible that have um, a right-hand man. Moses had Aaron. Joshua had Caleb. There was David and Jonathan. There were the three Hebrew children that went together. There's Elijah and Elijah. Jesus had his 12 apostles. There were the inner three among the 12 apostles of Peter, James, and John. Jesus once sent a bigger group of his disciples out on mission two by two in pairs. What are these but ministry partners? These are gospel partners, friends who purposely work alongside each other, who have a special bond and are used by God for a special purpose. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a firm rule on this sort of thing, such as, you know, every missionary must have a partner on the field that you must always go out two by two and never in any other combination of numbers. No, but partnership, though, is so common in the Bible that we can't overlook it. Elders given to the church, as they're described in the New Testament, are always mentioned in plural. They're a group. They go together. The church, for that matter, is a body with many body parts. It's a whole unit, and yet it's made up of many members. We need others. We go together. We were made to go together. We, we need people who will complement our gifts and will supplement our weaknesses. In our study of the book of Acts so far, we've seen various gospel partnerships. Paul and Barnabas being a key example of that. They've been working side by side since chapter 11. So for something like three to four years right now, they have been a dynamic duo, a Batman and Robin for the gospel. They've been traveling together and they've been teaching the gospel to whoever will listen. Last week we saw in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas being sent out on a journey and another pair joined them for this specific mission of taking the announcement of the Jerusalem council that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved to the surrounding areas, the cities and the churches that have come to believe in Jesus. That message has to get out there. And so Paul and Barnabas with Judas and Silas go out. Well, this week we come to the end of chapter 15 and we'll go a little bit into chapter 16 and we're going to see even more partnerships form and some old partnerships get really tested. Our passage is about the coming and going of gospel partners. Or we could think of it in terms of the sweetness and the strains and the inevitable success of gospel partnerships as God blesses them. Now the application for us in a passage like this today, for those of us who aren't apostles and aren't missionaries, most of us in this room aren't missionaries, 
The application for a passage like this for us today is probably most closely related to how we relate together in the church, how we get along, how we work together, why we need each other, how we resolve conflict, what's most important. It's a passage that should keep us from Lone Ranger Christianity, but should also keep us from idolizing relationships as though they're an end in themselves. It's for the sake of the gospel, and they're sweet when the gospel is at the center of them, though at times they're strained. Chapter 15, verse 36, let's start reading there. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance, uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We'll stop there for today. If you have a Bible with paragraphs or with headings, you see we have three sections before us today. We have three paragraphs. You have this conflict between Paul and Barnabas. You have the call of Timothy to join with Paul. And then you have what's called the Macedonian call in the last section that I read. Now, it's the first of those three paragraphs that is the most surprising, the most unique, the the most unusual for the book of Acts. If you've been studying the book of Acts with us thus far, you've probably noticed some repetition of themes. Sometimes it's new people in new places, but the same story. The gospel is spreading, some are believing, and some are opposing. On to the next city. The gospel's proclaimed, some believe, a church is formed, and then they're run out of town. It can feel a little bit redundant. Every now and then, though, you come across something where you go, I didn't see this coming. This surprises me. This is unusual. This is going to teach us something that 
Whatever came before in the book of Acts has yet to teach us. Well, that's the first of our three paragraphs today. It stands out. It surprises. And so we're going to give that more attention than the other two today. Don't be surprised. We'll have maybe half of our time on the first of these three points. The first is what we might call a sharp disagreement with an old friend. It's a sharp disagreement, we're told. The old friends are Paul and Barnabas, and they have a sharp disagreement on whether to take Mark, also called John and also called John Mark, with them on their next missionary journey. There's some background information that you got to have. One being that John Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas before. It's in chapter 13, if you want to look back there. Chapter 13, verse 3, we're just given this, this sentence that seems insignificant at first read. They had John to assist them. Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary trip, and they have, Paul, they have John with them to assist them. Insignificant? Well, maybe more significant when we get to verse 13 of chapter 13. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. More significant, but still pretty unclear what happened what's going on and we're not told we're not told why John went back home why Mark went back home perhaps it was fear of persecution perhaps it was a, a treacherous journey we know that the Taurus mountains were in front of Paul and Barnabas in Mark and and perhaps that was his reason to go back home perhaps simply like me he doesn't like traveling he'd rather be home he likes his pillow he likes he likes familiar food, and he likes comfort. We don't know why. But it had to be something kind of bad because of the way it's worded here in chapter 15, verse 38. He had withdrawn from them, Luke tells us. And that's a strong Greek word. It means he left them. He abandoned them. He turned on them. Paul clearly viewed John Mark's ejection from the trip as something like wimping out or having his priorities out of whack. Now, Paul and Barnabas, in chapter 15, at the beginning of our passage, they do agree on what's next for them. A trip, circling back to churches they've already been to, checking in on them, and strengthening them. They agree on that, but they do not agree at all on whether to take John Mark with them. Barnabas wants to bring him along. He wants to give him a second chance. No surprise, Barnabas was famous for his encouragement. Barnabas was also cousin to John Mark. We learned that from Colossians 4 just in passing. That maybe has something to do with his sympathetic approach. But Paul reasons something like, we're going back to the same places we've been before where there's been persecution. We don't need a guy leaving us in the middle of a journey. We need an assistant who will get us to the end. And there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And again, the Greek language is telling. A sharp disagreement. It means they got heated. Faces were altered and voices were raised and they were each irritated with each other. This, this wasn't a gentlemanly disagreement. It was hot, and it led to them splitting up. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and goes to Syria 
in Cilicia. The band is breaking up, you could say. Now, I think Luke includes this story here. Well, one, because it is true. It's history, and Luke is an honest historian, and he doesn't mind. He doesn't shirk away from telling the, the church's beauties and its warts. But I also think that it's here in the book of Acts as instruction to us. I think it's, it's warning. I think we need to apply it that way. I, I think this is almost a, a case study in conflict. There's a lot we don't know about it, but there's some things we can know. And it deserves some dissection to see what went wrong and what we can learn. So let me suggest, working through this ordeal, by mentioning seven principles that I think we can observe that are either taught or implied in this break between Paul and Barnabas. Seven principles. One, disagreement is often unforeseen. It seems to come out of nowhere sometimes. Reading along in the book of Acts for the very first time, no one would have guessed that a sharp disagreement was about to happen between two godly guys with so much shared history and so much proven partnership. I mean, let's just review. Go back to chapter 9 with me. Remember in chapter 9, here, Paul was converted by Jesus. He used to oppose the way of Jesus fiercely. And then he was saved by Jesus and commissioned to preach for Jesus. You remember how there were plenty of people in the church in Jerusalem who were suspicious of Paul and his conversion. They wondered, is this real? Did he really convert to Christ? Or is this simply a ploy in order to get close to kill us? We'll look at chapter 9, verse 27. In steps Barnabas who took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus Paul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now this is back 12 to 13 years from Acts 15. We, we think, oh, that's six chapters in the Bible. That can't be too long ago. That's 12 to 13 years. And so Paul and Barnabas have 12 to 13 years of history of Barnabas having Paul's back. Do you remember in chapter 11 when Barnabas had the great idea to teach these young Christians in Antioch by going and getting Paul and having Paul teach alongside Barnabas? And so for a year or two, they were in Antioch co-teaching new Christians. Do you remember the words of the Holy Spirit in chapter 13? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work I have for them. This was a divinely orchestrated partnership. For the next several chapters in Acts, we see them traveling through these Mediterranean cities with the gospel. They're seeing souls saved. They're facing opposition. At times it gets fierce. The opposition is fierce in chapter 14 when in Lystra they stoned Paul. Remember that? Barnabas was there. He saw that. But Barnabas would have been one of those disciples who went out to that still body after it was dragged out of the city supposing he was dead. They would have been with Paul when he breathed and moved and got up 
Barnabas would have been with Paul when they walked back into that same city or when they left the next day to the next city that they were going to. Barnabas would have no doubt been helping battered Paul along the way to the next city. They'd been through the Jerusalem council together. We saw that last week in chapter 15. Remember, they faced off against false teachers. Side by side, they went toe-to-toe with false teachers about what the gospel is and what it is not. They traveled together to Jerusalem to confer with Jerusalem elders and apostles about what the gospel is and, and is not. And you remember from last week, the truth prevailed. The gospel was preserved. No doubt Paul and Barnabas high-fived after the decision was made. No circumcision needed for Gentiles. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. These guys have spent a lot of time together. They have the same theology, the same gospel, a proven partnership. John Calvin comments like this. They had long time labored, being of one mind, under this yoke whereunto the Lord had tied them. They had by many experiences felt the excellent favor of God. Yea, that wonderful success mentioned heretofore by Luke in Acts was a manifest blessing of God. Though they had been almost drowned so often in so many tempests of persecution and were set upon so sore by infinite enemies... Yet they were so far from being pulled asunder that their agreement was then most of all proved. But now, for a light matter, and for which might easily have been ended, they break that holy bond of God's calling. Calvin calls it a light matter over which they divided. And I think that's a necessary angle. That's the second principle. Sharp disagreement is sometimes over rather light matters, simple things. Paul and Barnabas agreed on so much, but they disagreed on simply whether Mark gets to go on their next mission trip or not. And neither seemed to be able to to budge, to defer, to go along or to even appreciate the other person's argument or point. In fact, that leads to the third point we can observe. That disagreement, even over light matters, is often complicated. Just because they're simple doesn't mean they're not complex and thorny. Can't you see the legitimacy of both sides of this argument here? I sure can. Can't you imagine Paul saying to Barnabas, Jesus said, he who turns back after he's put his hand to the plow isn't worthy of me. Now, I'm not saying this Barnabas guy isn't saved, but it's something close. There's something really serious about him turncoating and going back in the midst of a missions trip. What's John Mark going to do if or when they pick up stones again? This is not a time for us, Barnabas, to be sentimental. I know you're cousins, but more is at stake here than his feelings. Can't you imagine Barnabas replying? Paul, we serve a God of grace. His grace is endless. He's not the God of second chances, but third and fourth and fifth and nth degree 
chances. Don't you remember Peter? He denied the Lord three times, and he was not only restored to the Lord, but restored to his ministry and used mightily. How about you, Paul? He used to kill Christians. He used to imprison them to stop the way of Christ. And in his mercy, he saved you. And look at how he uses you now. Really, we can't give this guy a, another shot. It's been, a, it's been a couple of years now. Don't we teach the churches? Be patient with one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. You see, each of these guys has Bible verses. The Bible doesn't speak directly to, does John Mark get to go on a second missions trip? The Bible has principles that need to be applied with wisdom. This is a discernment issue, a wisdom issue. The Bible doesn't spell out exactly how this should be concluded. And that makes things complicated. Now, by the way, this is a very different debate than the one that was had at the beginning of Acts chapter 15. That was over the gospel. Is the gospel grace alone or grace plus law? And when the gospel is on the line, well, there's no flexibility. There's no accommodation. You must be firm. In fact, it's loving to say this is the gospel. That isn't the gospel. But when it comes to other matters, non-gospel issues, there are degrees of importance. There should be possible flexibility. It takes wisdom to discern how close something comes to the gospel, how close it comes to biblical conviction, how close it comes to undeniable wisdom, and how there are other things that are a little more foggy than those. With those kind of issues, we might call them gray issues, there is often complexity. And so we should be self-suspicious. That leads to the next principle. Fourth, sharp disagreement always involves some sin. That is sharp disagreement. Now, I didn't say disagreement always involves sin, but sharp disagreement with anger and frustration and hot-headedness, that always involves sin. There would be no conflict in this world if there wasn't sin. Or another way to say it, there wouldn't be any conflict. There wouldn't be sin in this world if there were no conflict. There is conflict because there's sin. James 4 tells us that conflicts come from within our heart, from anger and jealousy and rage. That's how arguments start, at least sharp ones. Disagreements will happen, but we want to avoid a sin. And hence, we want to avoid being sharp with each other. Fifth, disagreements may need to settle for what I would call resolution by dissolution. Resolution by dissolution. That's what we have here in the case of Paul in Barnabas. They have two opposing views that can't be compatible. Now, they should have been flexible because this wasn't a, a biblical issue per se. 
But where there are two incompatible views, if there isn't deferring, then there isn't compatibility. You can imagine two missionaries on the field who just won't see eye to eye, no matter how hard they try. After a while, perhaps it would be wise for them to reconfigure the teams, go to different locations, minister in different contexts. Imagine in this scenario, if, if, uh, if Ryan Kelly, as the, the elder who oversees worship services here at this church, told my buddy Drew, I'd like us to go in a new direction, classical worship music only. Organs, cellos fine, no drums, hymns with pews. This is where we're going. This is where I'm leading us. And Drew said, but I like drums. I, I like my guitar. I like strumming on a guitar. This is who we are. This is what we do. And I said, no, this is where we're going. By the way, this is a totally made up scenario, if you couldn't tell. I like classical music, but not that much. And Drew and I are, are never uh, breaking up. So that's just settled. We've already said that. Uh, but imagine, we can't both have classical music and not have classical music, at some point, one of us is going to have to figure out a different place to go. Again, hopefully that never happens. But you get the point. You get the point that some disagreements actually do need to settle for resolution by dissolution or by separating at least for a while. Sixth, God can and does use disagreements for his greater good. He can even use sinful conflict for his greater good. He did in this case. Many scholars have noticed on this passage that the result of the split was a doubling of the teams. You went from one missionary team to two missionary teams. That's not that bad. You now have... These men doubling the ground that they cover. They're getting around to these churches faster. So the end result of the conflict, though God doesn't bless it or, or, or condone it, nevertheless, the end result is that the gospel doesn't slow down one bit. Not even surprising, sharp conflict in the midst of the best missionary team can slow down Jesus building his church. And seventh, a seventh principle, we should remain hopeful for full reconciliation eventually. Even if separation is necessary, and by the way, when I referred to that back a couple points ago, I should have made clear that does not apply to marriage. It doesn't always apply to every situation. We certainly should never get to that kind of resolution quickly or lightly. It's only in, in unusual circumstances, but, but sometimes that's, that's what's needed on the better part of wisdom. But even where that happens or even where it's been sinful or wrong to divide, we can remain hopeful for full reconciliation eventually. That seems to be what happened in this scenario. We, we don't have many details, but we have these three headlines. We have 1 Corinthians, written seven years later, where Paul reminds the Corinthians that Paul and Barnabas are allowed to receive remuneration from the church. 
Apparently, the band got back together. We have Colossians 4:10 regarding Mark, where John, uh, sorry, where Paul says, Mark says hi, and if he comes to you, greet him warmly. And then we have this third headline in Paul's last letter, the last recorded letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy, where he tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him to me, for he, he is very useful to me for the ministry. Isn't that great? Until we're in heaven, we can always hope that reconciliation might still take place. And we can thank God that in heaven, among Christians, it will. Now secondly, the second paragraph into chapter 16, we might call it a new partner and a curious decision. The new partner is a young man named Timothy, and the curious decision is for Paul to have him be circumcised. Isn't that a curious decision, especially here in right on the heels of chapter 15, right on the heels of the Jerusalem council where they decided that the gospel was grace alone through faith alone, not Jesus plus circumcision. Right after that, even while they're spreading word of that decision. You see chapter 16, verse 4, they were traveling around to existing churches to carry the decision of the apostles and the elders. That decision, that circumcision, is not required for Gentile salvation. And Timothy was circumcised. Now, we know from Galatians 2 that around this time, Paul had another traveling companion, a Greek young man named Titus, and he wasn't circumcised. Paul says in Galatians 2, I brought Titus even to Jerusalem, and yeah, they put up a fit, but I wouldn't have him circumcised. What's the difference? In the case of Titus, who's a Greek, for false teachers to demand him to be circumcised was tantamount to Paul compromising on the gospel, and Paul wouldn't. Paul wouldn't have him be circumcised lest it be communicated. Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved. In the case of Timothy, though, he's half Jewish, half Gentile. Obviously, his Gentile dad didn't want him to be circumcised, so he, he wasn't. And this is a peculiar situation. He's half Jewish. Some people in the community would view him as Jewish, but not being circumcised would mean he's an outsider. He doesn't go to the synagogue. He doesn't make sacrifices and these sorts of things. So when it's a gospel issue, Paul says, no way. And when it's merely a matter of convenience and culture, and practically being able to get into Jewish synagogues with a little more ease, Paul says, Timothy, let's do it. And so it's, it's a gospel issue. Now, who is this Timothy? What do we know about him? Well, he was apparently converted under Paul's ministry sometime earlier. Now, a year or two later, Paul is back in town, and he's checking in on the churches he planted, and he hears, verse 2, that Timothy is well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. In different cities, Timothy is famous among the Christians for his faithfulness and for his well, just genuine goodness. He's well spoken of. Paul apparently can observe the same 
there's an opening on Team Paul since Barnabas left, and he wants Timothy to come along. From here on out, Timothy will be Paul's right-hand man, even his his stand-in. When Paul can't go to a church to solve a problem, he sends Timothy the next best thing. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 4, I'll send you Timothy. He's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he'll put you in remembrance of everything I taught you. Or in Philippians 2, he said, I hope to send Timothy to you soon so that he can encourage me with how things are for you and because I have no one like him who will genuinely care for your souls. No one like him. Paul had maybe a dozen other disciples or assistants or, or, or right-hand men, men, you could say. But, but Timothy was unique, and Paul could say of him, I have no one like him. As I said already, Paul's last letter in the Bible, anyway, was written to Timothy. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, we see there how uniquely personal this is, how, how, how much history they have. Where Paul can say, 2 Timothy 1, verse 3, Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears. I, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwell first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. You get to chapter 3 of this letter. Paul reminds him, You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Now get this. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Persecutions which I endured, but the Lord rescued me from them all. What persecutions happened in Lystra? Timothy's hometown? That's where Paul was stoned. Did Timothy see it? Perhaps. He surely saw him the next day when the battered Paul came back to the city. If we had more time, we could mine the New Testament for insight regarding Timothy and Paul and their sweet relationship together. It's one of the best gospel partnerships that's ever been had, I think. We can make a couple of observations as we wrap up this section, though. Note that there is a real need for gospel partners. Even the Apostle Paul, he wasn't a lone ranger. He didn't go it alone. He needed men around him. He needed men to help him. Timothy was one of those. There's a rich beauty in these gospel partnerships, isn't there? Father-son relationship. Disciple-discipler relationship. There's sweetness and warmth and love and affection and history. There's a giving and getting in these gospel partnerships. So with Timothy, Paul gets help. Timothy is an extension of Paul's ministry. But Timothy gets Paul, his leadership, his guidance, his mentoring. And he's to pass it along to others in the same way Paul Passed it on to him. There's also a coming and going of gospel partners that we need to be reminded of. Sometimes the going is painful, as it was with Barnabas. 
Sometimes the going is bittersweet, as it was many times with Timothy when Paul would have to say goodbye and leave Timothy in a difficult situation because that church needs help and Paul has to go on to the next city. The mission is that important. That is bittersweet. I remember your tears, Timothy. And sometimes the going means a new coming. These gospel partners come and go, which I think implies we need to hold them loosely. Sometimes a sweet partnership could end in a parting of ways. Sometimes a sweet partnership will mean a new assignment for one of the two or three or four. And sometimes the Lord will plop down right in front of you a Timothy. Now, thirdly, we see a fresh vision and a subtle addition. The fresh vision is literally a vision given by God, redirecting Paul and his team to head west to Macedonia where the gospel hasn't yet been preached. As for the subtle addition, what's that? Well, it's the addition of one more traveling companion to the mission team. You've got Paul and Silas, then Timothy was added, verses 3 and 4 or so of chapter 16. And then in the next paragraph, there is another addition to the team. Did you see it? It's subtle. Look down, chapter 16, verse 10. This is the first time in Acts where the author writes in first person. We sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. How can this mean anything other than Luke, the author, has now joined Paul's traveling team? Before this, all the pronouns are he and they and them. And then here, this changes now, and Luke is with Paul as a, another right-hand man. Luke, the physician. Luke, who's been a historian and will continue to be Watching things close up, first person. You know, people talk about the Bible like it's a, the telephone game where, you know, the story changes one person or the next. And by the time it comes around the circle, it's completely different than where you started. But here we have Luke, a historian, starting in chapter 16. This is all stuff Luke is seeing firsthand. And you say, well, what about the stuff that came before? He wasn't there. Yeah, but he got eyewitness accounts. He did good historical work. He was a bit of a journalist and in interviewing people. We see this in the beginning of his first volume, which we call the Gospel According to Luke. He says, I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us from those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning. Having followed all these things closely for some time, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, so he's addressing it to some guy named Theophilus, that you might have certainty about the things you've been taught. What had he been taught? Well, he'd been taught what Jesus taught. He'd been taught the life and death and burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. That's volume one, what we call the gospel according to Luke. Volume 2 is the book of Acts. It's what Jesus continued to do as the exalted reigning king from heaven. 
So Acts 1 begins, remember this? In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Implication, what comes after this in the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do. Far from Jesus sitting in heaven, twiddling his thumbs and listening to our boring prayers, Jesus is on the move. He is active. He is working. He is orchestrating. And so we've said this book is not just the Acts of the Apostles, or even the acts of the Holy Spirit, though that's closer. It is the acts of the risen Lord through the Holy Spirit by the apostles. Now why is that relevant to chapter 16? Well, because Luke directs our attention there. In Acts 16, Jesus tells us, uh, he says, Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, was actively directing the where of the gospel among this missions team. Remember the plan? Go back to the cities we've been to before and see how they are and strengthen them. That's the plan, verse 36 of chapter 15. And so they went through Syria and Cilicia. Those are provinces. Now, here's where we're due for looking at a map because none of us really know where these cities are and some of them even aren't there today. So it started in Antioch. It's moving now. As they recheck on these churches that they've already been to before, they go, as it says, chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came to Derby and Lystra. So you see it there on the screen? And then chapter 16, verse 4, they went on their way through these cities, delivering the decision of the Jerusalem council. Verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith. Verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. You see that? Now stop there. Here's where the record player gets bumped. Here's where there's a sharp right turn. There is a redirection as Jesus makes known that he is actively involved in the mission. So you see verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia in Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What? Well, verse 7, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What is this? Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, holding back the proclamation of the gospel? Well, we don't know exactly what this would have looked like. Maybe it was prophecy, maybe it was a vision. Maybe it was some logistical closed door. All we know is that Jesus, through his spirit, is directing where Paul goes. It wasn't wrong for Paul to have the idea to strengthen existing churches. That's a good thing. You actually need some people to stay behind for a very long time for the health of the church and not keep moving on to the next mission and the next new place and new people. But the word does have to spread, too. People have talked about the twofold ministry of the word, strengthening churches and the spread of the word where Christ isn't yet known. And Paul was all about both of those. And so he had no problem when the Spirit redirected him from his original plan to strengthen existing churches and to go someplace else. But, but for a while, it was a bit mysterious. Even the spreading part was put on hold. You're keeping track with that on the geography? He tries to go west. 
There's a Holy Spirit stop sign there for some reason. He tries to go north and then northeast, and, and then there's a Holy Spirit stop sign there. And so he, he goes down southwest to Troas, and that's where he gets a vision. A vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Macedonia, way up in the northwest of the screen, on another continent. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is stepping on the gas in the geographic spread of the gospel. There was nothing wrong with strengthening existing churches. There was nothing wrong with Paul going a little bit north, a little bit northwest. But, but Jesus says, look, think about Macedonia. Think about what we would call today Europe. Think about that continent across the sea. And Paul concludes, they got to go. Jesus is stepping on the gas. Didn't he say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. As we work our way through the book of Acts, we'll just keep moving more and more west. The map will have to move more and more in that direction. Paul eventually will find himself with the gospel in Rome the end of the known earth, you could say. The end of the practical world, you could say, in the days of Roman rule. That's as far as it gets in Paul's day. But it's really far. It's remarkable. Jesus is building his church. But thankfully, it didn't stop in Rome, did it? Praise God, the gospel has come to Albuquerque. And there are many here who believe. Praise God, the gospel goes out from Desert Springs Church and from other churches to faraway places and to our backyards and at our places of work where Christ isn't yet known. The gospel has to get out. It's supposed to spread. It will spread, and it will spread with or without you. But why not be a part of it? Isn't it incredible that God could have sent an angel to proclaim to the whole world. He could have written the gospel in the sky. He could have flooded the world with tracts. He didn't do any of that. He just made the people he's saving into messengers. And we're supposed to spread it. If it seems slow going, pray for Jesus to step on the gas. Sometimes he does in spectacular ways. Those are called revivals. The Bible has them. History has shown them. We should long for them. We should want Jesus to microwave what he's already promised to do. We should long to be able to see it in our day. We should pray for it more than we do. I should pray for it more than we do. Our passage in Acts this morning is all about something that it never actually articulates or spells out. It's about the gospel, isn't it? But it doesn't say what the gospel is. You might be here this morning and you've heard me say gospel, good news, Jesus, death, resurrection. And you don't know yet what that means and what it means for you. Can I just not assume that you know that? And let me tell you, we're in big trouble with a holy God. He made us for himself. He made us to glorify him. And we've all gone astray. That's called sin. 
we're in trouble. He will destroy us unless something happens. God intervened. In space and time, the second person of the Trinity became a man, and he lived perfectly righteous on our behalf and died sacrificially on that cross to pay for our guilt. And we can receive his righteousness and have him bear our guilt and shame if we simply believe that it's true. You simply trust. You simply cling to it and call out for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't get to it except simply welcoming it and receiving it by faith, by believing that it's true, that Jesus died for you and that your sins can be forgiven and you can be restored to God. You can do that today if he's opening your heart. We'll see that in the next passage. I pray you believe that gospel and would believe it today. Christian, Let's partner up for this gospel. Let's stay partnered up for this gospel. Let's resolve differences where we can and be okay where we can't. Let's pursue peace and reconciliation where that's needed because the world is watching. Let's get to work together for the cause of Christ. He's given us each other. We need each other. And what a gift he's given. Oh, I know, we're all messed up. We all have our warts. None of us know how bad the others in this room are. But the gospel is greater than that, and it unites us and changes us, and he is restoring us to the image he made us in. He's putting us on mission. How wonderful that gospel partnerships can be so rich with experience and, and love and affection and bond and yet also be so tied to something outside of ourselves that's not merely about ourselves, the mission is what our partnerships are all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity and fellowship that we share around the gospel in this church. It's far from perfect, and we pray for more unity. We pray for more Humility. We pray for more deference where that's needed and also for greater conviction about the gospel and truth when that's needed. Lord, may our love for each other in this church not be a reservoir for our own pleasure and enjoyment, but may it be a river of blessing to the world and we never forget the centrality of the mission. We sure see in Acts 15 and 16 that the mission is central to these people. May it be more so for us. Lord, we pray with Psalm 67 that you would bless us, that your name would be known in all the earth. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.